This morning's reading is from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ruth. Morning, everybody. If I haven't said morning to you already, which I think I have. Um, but... We're going to finish off our study in the book of James today. We've been doing this for the last 10 weeks over the summer. Um, it's been a really um, formative time, I think. Um, I would say that for me anyway. It's been a challenging time as we've studied God's Word and as he's drilled into what it practically looks like to live out our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and we're going to kind of round things off today um, by looking at what James says here in this passage um, in chapter 5. As we get going, um, I asked this in the last gathering, and there wasn't many people that had their hand up, but I'll ask it again. Um, anybody on Twitter? Ah, oh, a few people, that's good. Um, does anyone on Twitter follow um, any pages called Out of Context, such and such? So uh, there are ones like Out of Context Premier League Football for the sports fans. There are ones for your favorite TV shows, sitcoms, like Out of Context, The U.S. Office. There's even ones like Out of Context, Chris Eubank. That's a good one. I like it. You're probably sitting going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about if you're not on Twitter, if you don't follow any of these accounts. But basically, um, this page, this Twitter page, whatever it is, Out of Context, they post a picture or have a video out of context, and then you have to try and work out what it is that is being shown. If you know the TV show or if you know sport, then you will know what it's talking about. And maybe it brings a wee smile to your face as you watch the video, you look at the picture. If you're someone like my wife who knows nothing about sport, out of context Premier League means nothing to her. Or if you're someone who doesn't watch a TV show like the US office, then an out of context US office is gonna mean nothing to you. It's like if you were to read a book but you just opened the book at a random page, you just read that page out of context from the rest of the book, you wouldn't know what's going on. It would be completely unfamiliar to you, it would be strange. That's what out of context means and that's what the out of context Twitter pages are like. And here's the thing with that very tenuous link. As we come to the end of the book of, uh, the book of James this morning, James doesn't want us to look at an out of context James 5, 13 to 20. He doesn't want us to do that because there is a danger that if we just drop in, it will just raise loads of questions. 
it'll all feel a bit strange. There's even the potential for us to read this out of context and to go down very hurtful or harmful roads. So it's very, very important that we look at this passage in light of all that we've seen in the book of James. We look at it in the context of this book, in the context of the people that James is writing to here. Remember who he's addressing. These are brothers and sisters uh, who he's addressed with a genuine concern all the way through, that they live out their faith in Jesus Christ, that the faith in their hearts that they profess to have, that faith would be evident in the fruit in their lives, that it would be seen in their lives. Remember what James said all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. He said, you've been given this new life of faith. God chose to give it to you by his will. You received it by the word of truth. Now, new life means new living. So all the way through, James has been given these practical instructions for how to live this life of faith out. How to show that our faith in God is genuine by our works. He's saying to them, don't live in that way because that's not you anymore. Don't show partiality because that's not what God has shown to you. Don't ignore the needs of others. Don't speak evil against others. Be truthful in the words that you say. That's what he said in verse 12 of chapter 5. Don't make yourself the center of your plans in life because it's God who's the one who's in control. Don't cling to your money like your life depends on it. But instead, live like this. Live in these ways because these are the ways that you demonstrate that your faith in Jesus is genuine. All the way through, we get this avalanche of practical instruction because the problem that these Jewish Christians have is that they are wandering in their faith. They are not being faithful to God. They are being, like he said in chapter one, a, a, like a double-minded man, like a wave tossed back and forth. They're living for God on a Sunday and then the rest of the week, they're just living how they want and James says, in order to fix that problem, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to ask for his wisdom in your life. You need to look in the mirror of God's word and realize where the blemishes are. You need to see where you're maybe not living out your faith. And you need to ask for God's help in order to fix those things. Remembering that God is the one who opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's a God who gives generously to all without reproach. If only we would ask and ask with the right sort of a heart, a humble heart. Humble yourself before God, James says, and he will lift you up. He will do the work in you to make you more like Jesus. He will give you a faith that works. That's the big message of the book of James. And so here as he signs off his letter, he says, know this, a humble person is a prayerful person. A humble person is a prayerful person. We demonstrate our humility by coming to God in prayer. We receive God's grace and wisdom to help us live out this life of faith when we humbly ask him for it in prayer. If you remember one thing this morning, remember this. 
A humble person is a prayerful person. In every season, in every situation, prayer is something you can always do. And prayer is something that's always a good thing to do. Look at verse 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Which, knowing the context of this book, we know that these people are suffering, suffering persecution for following Jesus. Well, James says, if that's you, pray. Are you happy? Pray. Praise God. Are you sick and in need? Pray. Do you need to confess your sins? Pray. God wants you. He invites you. He welcomes you to come before him in prayer in all circumstances. When you're sorrowful, when you're suffering, when you're celebrating, when you're sick, or when you're in sin, James says, humble yourself and come before the Lord in prayer. Don't let any circumstance stop you from praying because in order to live this life of faith, you need God's grace. You cannot live it on your own. At every moment and in every way, you need God. And we want to cultivate as a church family this culture of prayer and dependency on God for all things. It's one of our core values as a church. It's why we have our prayer and worship nights. It's why we pray every other week on a Monday night on Zoom together, acknowledging together that it's God who's in charge, recognizing that we depend on him for new life, and we depend on him to live this new life. And so James's closing instructions to these Christians are really pretty simple this morning. In every season, in every situation, humble yourself before God in prayer. Now, I say his message is simple here. The passage is not, <laughs> because there are lots of questions that are thrown up in this passage. It's actually been said that this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to get to grips with because there are lots of questions about prayer, about sickness, about healing. And you can see why if you just dropped in and read this out of context, you could take it off in lots of different directions. You could go in lots of different ways, but that's why it's important to try to answer these big questions in the context of this book. But in the context of this book, in the context of James 5, 13 to 20. So we're going we're gonna to look at, and in the context, James 5, 13 to 20 this morning. And here's one of the questions you maybe had. Verse 14, why call the elders to pray over the sick person and anoint them with oil? Well, the elders or the pastors in the church, they are appointed as the shepherds of the flock. They're given this special role to lead and to care for the people under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And a big part of what the elder is called to do is minister God's word to the people and pray for the people. Those are two of the big responsibilities an elder has from what we see in the Bible. And at Village Church, we have a plurality of elders here. So myself, John, Thomas, and Nick, we are the elders here in East, in Village East. And a big part of what we do is we pray when we get together, we pray for you as members of this church. When people in our church family are sick, we pray for them. Sometimes we go to be with them and pray with them. 
And in this context, in what James is writing here, the, the person is to call the elders to come and pray over them because it's probably like this person is very unable physically to come out to gather with others. It's maybe that they're bedridden with this illness or, or that they're so weak that they're unable to gather. And so whatever the case is, though, they are, are called to call the elders to come to them, to pray over them. The onus is on that person. Do you see that? They're the ones who do the calling of the elders. They're the ones who take the initiative and ask the elders to come when they're in need. This special need that they have. Now, what about the oil? Well, we can't be 100% sure about it, but I think we can um, safely rule out what it's not. So, it's not that the oil uh, is, is like a sacrament that God has initiated in Scripture, such as baptism or the Lord's Supper that we have every week here. The Roman Catholic Church, they have taken this anointing as oil, what it says here, to be one of um, kind of the sacraments that they have, the last rites, it's called, you maybe heard of that. Um, but people would say that they've taken that out of context of what James is saying here. And, and we believe that. We believe that it, it's not sacramental. It's not instituted by God as a sacrament in Scripture. And it doesn't look like it's medicinal either. It's for medicinal purposes. You would think that they'd probably call a doctor before calling an elder to come if it was for those reasons. Um, and the, the oil, it doesn't have any supernatural power to heal. They anoint the person, do you see there, in the name of the Lord. So the belief is that it's the Lord. It's by his spirit that this person will be healed. It's his power, not the power of, of this oil or anything to do with it. So I think the best thing we can land with here is that it's symbolic. It's symbolizing the special concern that there is to bring this need before God. Symbolizing God's anointing with his spirit. His spirit being poured out to heal that person or to bring healing to that person. Now, would we at Village here anoint with oil? Yes. We don't see why not from Scripture. The elders have done that in the past. But that's almost not really the point. The point here is that we would expect in a serious situation, in a time of serious need, our members would ask for us as elders to come and pray. And that we would. And we have. It's not that the elders possess any kind of additional power in comparison to anyone else, or that they have the key to unlocking something in God that no one else can, or, or that the faith of the elders when they pray this prayer of faith is the guarantee of a positive response from God. It's not any of those things. And it would be dangerous to think that it's those things or to take these verses out of context and believe that. <clears throat> if we believe that because the elders pray, the person will be healed every time, that's a dangerous thing to think. To believe that if a person is prayed for, um, that um, they, they'll be guaranteed to be made well. That's not what James is saying. And it's dangerous and harmful to go down that road. But what is clear, and what we can take from this, is that in circum certain circumstances, and with certain special needs, the elders have a unique role in praying for the people. Another question you might have had is this. Look at verse 15. What does this prayer of faith actually look like? What does it mean to pray in faith? And it sort of seems like James is saying that this prayer of faith always makes the sick person well. Is that right? And another question then that might flow from that is, 
Does it mean then that if the person isn't made well with a prayer of faith, that the prayer offered wasn't a prayer of faith? Or that the faith of the one offering it or the one being prayed for wasn't strong enough? Well, here's why context is everything. Because, again, we can answer these questions by what we know to be true in Scripture. We know that God doesn't always cure us of our physical needs right now. And a prayer of faith, especially when it comes to physical healing, cannot possibly be a prayer like this. God, please cure me of this illness right now or else. Now, we might not even say those words, but it might be what is in our hearts. We might say this, God, please heal me. And if you do, I'll make sure to do this for you. Again, we might not even say those words, but we might have those thoughts or desires in our hearts. That's not a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of demand. And as Christians, our faith isn't in the definitive, immediate healing of our physical bodies. Our faith is in God, the one who can bring healing, the one who does bring healing. But ultimately, God is the one who promises that for those who trust in Jesus, there will come a day when these physical bodies that we live in right now that are decaying and wearing out because of sin, these physical bodies will one day be healed fully, made new forever. We live by faith knowing that our bodies will be raised up to new life, life without any sickness or any pain or any suffering, life where our bodies are perfect forever. And so here and now, as we live in these bodies, a prayer of faith might say something like this, God, please cure me of this illness if it is your will. Lord, please take this away from me if this is your will, but if it's not, Help me to trust you in it. Help my faith in you to grow deeper in it. Help me to look forward to the day when that, uh, look forward to that day when I will suffer no more with this. When I will have that new body that you promise, a perfect body forever in glory. Lord, give me more grace today to get through this. Remind me that your mercies are new every day for me. If you pray in faith like that, God will always answer your prayer. And if it's God's will to heal physically in that moment, well then he will. If it's not, he will give you more grace. He will give you what you need to keep going. This is a biblical truth. There are examples of people in the Bible praying to God, asking either for healing or deliverance in their time of need, and it not coming the way they're praying. Think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. He has this thorn in the flesh that's hampered him for years and years, and he's prayed three times to the Lord for it to be taken away from him. But it wasn't taken away. And what did Paul hear the Lord say to him in his weakness? He heard this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Think even of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in faith, Lord, if there is any way for this cup of wrath to pass over me, then please, Lord, 
But here's the humility of Jesus Christ, because even though he's God's own son, listen to what he says, but not my will, but yours be done. That's a prayer of faith. See, a prayer of faith acknowledges and trusts the object of that faith above all things. It's never to do with the strength of our faith. It's all to do with the strength of the one that our faith is in. Trusting in him. Knowing what he is like. And throughout this book, James has been giving us what God is like so that our prayer of faith would be informed by God's word. Think of chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. A prayer of faith. Ask God without doubting because we trust that he gives generously to all without reproach. Chapter 1, verse 17. A prayer of faith knows that every good and perfect gift is from above. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, a prayer of faith is offered in lowliness and humility before God, knowing that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Chapter 4, verse 11, a prayer of faith knows that there is only one who has the power to save and destroy. In chapter 5, verse 11, a prayer of faith trusts that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's not the book of James alone that informs a prayer of faith, but the whole of the Bible gives us a true and a proper vision of who God is and what God is like. We're prone to wandering from the truth about God. I am. We're prone to seeking earthly wisdom and not God's wisdom. We're even prone at times to let our circumstances distort and warp the view that we have of God. Which is why if we are to be a people who pray in faith, we need to be immersed in God's word. We need to bathe in his wisdom. Because then we will come to God in prayer on his terms and not on our own. We'll come to God in prayer trusting that his ways are perfect and that he is always working for the good of those who love him. We'll come to him in prayer knowing that he's in charge and that he knows what he's doing even if we do not. And I know I say that and there are occasions in life when that is so, so difficult. So difficult to understand. So difficult to pray in faith like that. What's happening in your life or in this world might make you question whether God really is in control or whether God really has your best interests at heart. But we pray in faith, acknowledging that it's God's will that must be done and that it's God's will that is best for us as his people. When we pray in faith, our primary concern won't be for the immediate earthly circumstances to change. Although it's right for us to pray for those things, God calls us to petition him and to pray for even the small things in life that are concerning us. It's right to pray in those ways, but our primary concern when we pray to God must be to trust him. That we wouldn't wander away from what we know to be true about him or that our our view of him wouldn't be warped and distorted by, by our present circumstances. We go on living out our faith in him. And I think God, by his grace, gives us three things to help us pray in this way. He gives us his word, He gives us his spirit and he gives us each other. 
He gives us his word, his very words. When we have nothing else to pray ourselves, we can read it, we can be reminded of who he is, we can pray those words back to him. Romans 8 tells us that he gives us his very spirit to pray for us in our weakness, to intercede on our behalf. And when we are struggling to pray in faith ourselves, we have others around us who will pray with us. Look in this passage, how many times someone is praying with someone else, whether it's the elders praying with the sick person or whether it's the person confessing their sins and praying with others. I remember um, a couple of years ago, Jane and I, uh, my wife and I, um, we found out at the 20-week scan that our child was uh, going to be born with a, a serious heart condition. Um, she's doing really well now. She's fine now, Ruby. But I remember on that day of the 20-week scan, it was obviously heartbreaking news. It was news that we were never expecting to get. Um, and we were really distraught and dejected. And I remember calling a friend about what we'd found out. And I told him the news, and I remember the prayer that he prayed on the phone. It was the most simple of prayers. It was the most basic of prayers, but he prayed this. Lord, I pray that Jane and Alan would know that God, you are with them, and that the plans that you have for them are good, always good. We did pray for the circumstances to change, but the, the primary concern of my friend's prayer was that Jane and I, in the midst of these difficult circumstances, would cling to the truth about God, that we would go on living out our faith in God, that in the valley we would know that God was with us. You might have wondered there in, in verse 15 whether the illness that James is talking about is connected to sin. The question we might ask is, is the person's illness a direct consequence of sin? And this is where context is crucial here. Because in this context, it does seem like the person's illness is connected to their sin. There's enough that's talked about here, I think, and, and many um, theologians and people would say that there is enough talked about here that there is a connection between this, the sickness that they have and, and the sin in their life. Now, we know that's not always the case. The Bible tells us that, which is why this context and knowing the context is so important. Um, and it's why we should never uh, try and draw a direct line from our sickness to the sin maybe that we have committed, or we should never try and do that for anyone else as well. You notice that when the person who's sick calls for the elders, they're the one taking the initiative because it's almost like they're reflecting themselves. They're, that's self-reflection. That's what's needed. And, and there might be that there, there is a time for us to have that self-reflection in, in a time of weakness or sickness where we think, is there a sinful attitude here that I have that I need to repent of? That I need to ask God to um, cleanse me from? That might be true, but it's not always true that sickness and sin, there's a direct uh, relationship between the two in that sense of it being a direct, a direct consequence. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples and they said to him, uh, when they walked past this man on the street who was born blind, uh, and they asked Jesus, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Was it, was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus replied, neither. No one has sinned. Think of Job. He's already been mentioned in chapter 5. 
Job, it was a man who was blameless, righteous before God, but he suffered greatly. And his friends come along and they say, Job, come on now, you must have done something. There's no way that this suffering you are uh, facing and that you're going through is not connected to your sin in some way. What have you done? Confess it to God, but he hadn't done anything. He was blameless. So we cannot and we should not say that every sickness and illness is a direct consequence of a person's sin. In, in most cases, it's not. But in other cases, it might be, like the context here in James. And on another level, all sickness and illness in this world is a result of sin. This world that God created in the beginning before the fall was a world without sickness and illness because it was a world without sin. And there are obvious times when our sickness or our illness can be directly a consequence of our sin. If you think, um, for example, I go home today and I get overly angry uh, and I decide to just punch the wall, concrete wall in my house. I'm going to break my hand. And for the next six weeks, the pain in my hand, the hand that's in a cast, is a physical reminder of that sin. Some physical pain is an obvious consequence of sin. The Bible says this in other places too. If you think of the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, this is a church in a bad way. There, there are divisions. The wealthy are neglecting the poor. People have been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And here's what Paul says to them in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Their sickness and even death is related to their sin. Can God in his grace give us times of weakness and even suffering to help us see sin in our lives? To humble us before him? Well, if we really understand the context of James 5, the answer is yes. There are times he may do that. Because what's James's ultimate concern here? It's that the person in that moment of weakness and pain, what would they do? they would humble themselves and come to the Lord, come back to him. They'd confess their sin to him if they need to do that, and they'd ask for him to, to draw near to them. If they need to call the elders, they would call the elders to come and pray in faith with them. And they pray in faith, being confident in the knowledge that God offers forgiveness and healing to those who humble themselves. Look at verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Uh, and that verse leads into to, to the next verses in verse 17 and 18, which um, when we think of what James's primary concern is writing here, it relates to what Elijah's primary concern was for his people too. James's ultimate concern throughout this letter was that wayward, wandering Christians would come back to God again that they would come back to him so that they can receive his grace and wholeheartedly live out their life of faith in him. And knowing that, it helps us understand why James uses the, the picture of Elijah here in verse 17 and 18, because Elijah's primary concern for his people was exactly the same as that of James. He wanted his people, God's people, to stop wandering away from God, to stop being unfaithful to God, and to come back to him again. Let me read verse 17 and 18. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, Elijah in the Old Testament, he lived a pretty remarkable life. Some of the things he did, they were incredible. But here's the amazing thing that James says here. It's if you're a Christian this morning, your prayers are as powerful and as effective as Elijah's prayers. You can read in, in the book of Kings, in, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, about Elijah and this story particularly. Basically, God doesn't allow it to rain on the land for three and a half years. He causes a massive drought after Elijah prays to God for that. Why? Why would Elijah pray for that? Why would God uh, grant that prayer? Well, it's because God's people had wandered away from him. They'd sinned against him. In fact, what they were doing back in 1 Kings was exactly the same as what the people that James is writing to were doing. They were being like double-minded men. They loved God on, on the weekend, but they loved Baal and all the other false gods every other day of the week. And God had given them this life and blessed them as his people, but they weren't living for him. They weren't trusting him, just like the people in the book of James. And so God sends a drought and the people are suffering physically without water. And Elijah is desperate for the people to come back to God again. He prays fervently that they would. And after some time, they do. They come back to God and God opens the heavens and the rains come and it's a sign that they have repented. It's a sign of God's healing and forgiveness. It's a spectacular story and it's amazing what God does through Elijah. But Elijah's primary concern in praying for these people is that they would return to God and draw near to him again. That's what he wanted. And you see then what the prayers of a righteous man are focused on. They're focused on people who have wandered away coming back to God. And James says those prayers, when they are offered in faith to God, are powerful prayers. They are effective prayers. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, the question is this. Do you have the same concern as James and Elijah for those who have wandered from the truth about God? Do you care for them the way James and Elijah did? Do you pray for others who've drifted from God regularly, fervently even? Look at verses 19 and 20 as we kind of draw to a close here. This is the joyous moment when God turns someone, like the people, from the error of their ways. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will, will cover a multitude of sins. I was away a few weeks ago with a group of friends, a group of Christian friends, uh, and there's one uh, person in the group who's drifted away, seemingly drifted away from Jesus. Um, they're, it's, it's happened quite slowly over time, um, just falling away in their faith. And I'm not sharing this story here uh, to claim any kind of credit, but only because it, it gets God's spirit working in any of us that makes us do this kind of a thing or, or speak in these kind of ways. But I'd read this passage and I knew I was going to be preaching on it and I couldn't in good conscience 
preach this passage without speaking to that guy again. And I felt God prompted me in a conversation with him just to tell him, not, not even, we've talked before in the past about, about different things about the Christian life and what we believe and difference in that. It wasn't even that that we talked about. It was just me simply saying to him, I'm praying for you at the moment. I want you to know that. You're often on my heart. I am often praying for you. And I'm here to chat with you anytime you want. James says, pray that no one wanders away. Pray that that person would come back. And if you're someone who's listening and you've maybe had that kind of a conversation with someone else, please hear this. That person is speaking to you in those ways because they love you and they care about you and they want to save your soul from what's ahead, from what they know to be true. That person knows what's at stake if we wander away from God, turn our back on him. But that person also knows that we follow a God who is gracious, that our faith is in a God who is gracious and merciful, that we have a God who's standing ready to welcome us back with open arms because he offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross for us to cover a multitude of our sins. He died to make the way for us to be brought back into relationship with God again, to save our souls from death. That's how much God cares. Will we care for those people just like him? If you're a Christian this morning, who are you praying for right now? Who's that person who's maybe on your mind or in your heart who's wandered away from God? Will you commit to praying for them regularly, fervently? Will you even let them know that you are praying for them? Because the prayers of a righteous person have great power as as they're working power to stop the rain for three and a half years, power to to turn a whole people, a whole nation back to God, and power to bring one wandering lost sheep back into the fold. As we get the landing gear out and the runway approaches in the book of James here, I want to finish with a few questions that kind of tie up everything in this book that we've thought thought about in the last 10 weeks. Are you someone this morning who's here and you're not sure if you have this living faith? Pray to God and ask him to give it to you. Are you unsure if you're living out this faith in every area of your life? Pray to God and ask him to reveal areas of sin in your life which you maybe need to confess to him and to others. But know there is forgiveness for you today in Jesus Christ. Are you struggling in a very specific circumstance? Potentially feeling overwhelmed by a situation in life, illness, mental health problems, financial difficulties. Will you come to God and pray? Will you call the elders to come and pray with you if you need? Are you struggling to maintain perspective? Will you pray to God and ask him to give you a true vision of what he is like? Are you needing to confess your sin to God today? Pray to him, confess your sin, and do it in the knowledge that he is patient and kind, and he offers forgiveness to those who call upon him. James wants us to know that there is no circumstance which should stop us from coming to God in prayer, no 
situation which should stop us from humbling ourselves before him and allowing him to raise us up. When you pray, will you pray in faith, knowing what God is like, clinging to the truth about God above all else, trusting that he will help you and trusting that he will help you in the best way for you? Will you pray for God's will to be done in every circumstance in life? It's my prayer that we will be a church family who depends on God for all things, that we show our humility by coming regularly, often to God in prayer, together, individually. Let's be a church family that are known as those who are quick to go to our knees to the Lord in prayer.